Welcome to That Tracks with Robert Sterabury. Today's guest is Dr. Vonda Jump Norman, PhD. She is a tenured professor in social work department. Uh, she teaches at Utah State University. She has received over $8 million in grant funding to study the effects of infant massage on a multitude of markers and did so while researching orphanages in South America, India, and Africa. And that money has also come from the Department of Defense to research and help veterans. In addition to these amazing items, she has done a TEDx talk, authored numerous articles and book chapters in her field of social work and in early childhood development. And she has been chosen three times by her students as their university mentor of the year. In fact, two of those times was in one year in two different departments. The people who are the closest to the baby are the ones who have the biggest impact. And, you know, 60 years ago, there was a person, John Bowlby, who believed that basically we develop through our interactions through our caregivers. And for me, he was really ahead of his time because it's only been in like the last 20 years that we have the the brain research that shows that that really is true. Vonda Jump Norman, welcome to That Tracks, a podcast dedicated to what I find interesting, and hopefully what my listeners find interesting too. Is it safe to say that you are the real-life embodiment of the Indiana Jones of early childhood development research? <laughs> Well, I guess the, I would come back with that and say, I'm the jack of all trades person in terms of, um, you know, being able to research a lot of different areas. Yes. And being a master of nothing. <laughs> I don't but, know about that. I, I think this, this tenure track uh, approval in April of this year. Uh, is probably going to put you into the master category, or at least the you know soon to be master, maybe. Uh, well, uh, well, I don't know. Um, not that I ever feel like I'll really be a master of anything, but I've learned a ton along the way for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you? I, I find myself saying uh, a lot of time I've taught uh, both form formally. Um, I had a position at the Louisville Science Center, and I worked in their health department on a grant there and, and other things that I've done doing corporate health and, and at, at the hospital. And I will say a lot of times is, you know, I, I'm most comfortable when I when I know I don't know something and I and I'm, have no fear of telling somebody, hey, I don't really know this, but I'll get back to you when I can figure this out and we can talk about it later. But here's what I know now. I would assume as a, as a academic professor, you're doing that type of talk all the time. Oh yeah. There's so much we don't know. And you know, when we start learning something, we figure out that there's a ton more that we need to learn in order to actually understand it better. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's focus in just for a second on, I think if you had any kind of catchphrase there ever was, uh, I think you know what that probably is, but it is your neurons that fire together, wire together. 
Um, and this is, I guess, the sort of the hallmark of your um, research and, and early childhood development. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that or yeah. a lot. Yeah. So, so what we know about baby development um, and particularly their brain development is that it happens through interactions with their primary caregiver and or, you know, other adults, other kids, the people who are around and interacting with a baby. The people who are the closest to the baby are the ones who have the biggest impact. And, you know, 60 years ago, there was a person, John Bowlby, who believed that basically we develop through our interactions through our caregivers. And for me, he was really ahead of his time because it's only been in like the last 20 years that we have the the brain research that shows that that really is true, that mm-hmm. our brains develop through interactions with other people. And so, you know, that neurons that fire together, wire together, um, you know, that basically means like for me, you mentioned my baby massage research. So when mm-hmm. a baby is being massaged, typically their parent, depending on the baby's cues, might be talking to them. Um, of course, the baby sees them they're touching them and then the baby has a great sense of smell and so the baby is also smelling their parent and so basically all of those senses are located in different parts of the brain but when they're all being fired simultaneously the neurons in those parts are being fired simultaneously then they begin to if that happens a lot want to fire together so that Mm -hmm. if, and these are all feel good neurons in the brain so that for that baby, there is a lot of good stuff happening and it's, it's all associated with their different senses. Now, if you think about a baby who has a lot of yelling in the home or, you know, their caregiver does a lot of yelling if they are maybe left by themselves a lot if they the interactions they do have are negative interactions then for that baby the neurons that fire together wire together as well mm-hmm. in terms of there's a lot of stress And, you know, those stress hormones, a lot of them are in one part of the brain, you know, it's the amygdala in our brain, that fear center of the brain that gets fired, it starts firing when there is stress for a baby. And those different neurons will become the go to center of the brain. If that baby experiences a lot of negative interactions like that. And so again, those neurons that fire together, wire together, and then they just become the ones that fire really quickly. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, like if a stranger walks up to a baby who's had really good interactions, the baby's more likely, I mean, you know, we've also got that stranger danger time where the right. baby is a little bit afraid of other people, but in general, they're more likely to be curious and open to an interaction with somebody. Whereas a baby who has learned that interactions are unsafe is much more likely to just feel a lot of stress 
even though this new person could be just very gentle and loving toward them. Yeah, that's that is, you know, why I shared that photograph with you of the my team that I was with. Um we were um primarily helping with this child's gait. And uh she had all kinds of both neurological and physiological um biomechanical reasons why she wasn't able to walk a certain way but she you know had spent uh, a very formative period years of uh, being in an orphanage and in um china and her her mother uh, who adopted her has made it her mission after having her own family to keep going back and finding kids that she can adopt so she has three now um, and all three have been with us in our um, rehab department um, where we've helped him. But what, you know, all of us knew that we had to tread lightly when it came to our interactions with her. And it really was the first time that we had, I had had this experience. And, but this, this idea that I, I saw you in one of your um, YouTube videos where you had a child who just couldn't look at you in any way, shape, or form um, when you tried to interact with them. And they literally were doing things to change their head and move so that they wouldn't make this eye contact. And and that certainly was one thing that um, these children had as issues. And And then we were with them for years and we all got so close and bonded and everything was just, you know, just went pretty swimmingly. But I tend to be a little bit of a joker every now and then, and I hadn't found out yet that they can't handle jokes, or at least these particular ones. And this one joke that I did, it's it's just so bittersweet. It's not even sweet, honestly, but I like to just have children tell me what their name is. And so I would play this little game with them. And her name rhymed with all these other things that I was saying, you know, is your name Kara? Is your name Tara? Well, her name was Sarah. And I went through probably, I don't know, 10 names like that. And it just created the largest outburst of crying uh, that we had seen in a, in a year or so. And we had to end the session. Couldn't, couldn't continue because she was unconsolable. Got in the car um with her mom her mom later shared this with us and she's like why did you act that way when robert was talking to you because i would play games with her i would put my hands out and she'd run underneath my hands and yell tunnel and you know all these types of things we would do so we were really pretty close but she said well he didn't know my name and he kept saying these other names and it just threw her right back to this other situation where she had, you know, such, you know, a lack of contact uh, with people. And uh, so not to make this about me, but it's, it's just, that has stuck with me for a very long time. Um, And, and how careful you need to be in your interactions with people and, and their, you know, for lack of a better term, their baggage that they have uh, for, for whatever age group, um, you know, that, that comes through. So, and, I think it's, it really is amazing to me, um, that you talk about the, the feel good, um, things that, that occur in the brain when children have these positive interactions. And, and then there's the, the counter side to this and the, the, the negative things that can occur and how those fire. And, and I guess how that is the, 
you know, flight or fight response uh, that, that hits very quickly. And it, it's there, you know, um, as I like to say, at least evolutionarily to protect us. And, you know, it, it's meant to do that. And what what is it that you've been doing with the Department of Defense uh, or that you did with the Department of Defense with, I think, believe it was soldiers and then helping them when they came home to interact with their children? Is that what part of it was? Did I get that right? Yeah. You know, I've, I've actually done a couple of different things. I worked with okay. zero to three on their military projects um, project, I guess. And what they were doing is they were working with professionals who work with military personnel um, who have experienced trauma, grief, and loss. So from like our, our mm-hmm. time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, you know, now just continuing down the road in terms of some of the trauma and stress that families have experienced. Um, and that project was really to help prepare the professionals who work with families with young okay. children to understand more about the impact of stress and the importance of that connection and relationship between the caregiver and the child. So we worked with folks in childcare, mental health, um, the medical profession, and gosh, there was one more area of folks that we worked with um, just to help them understand so that they could then kind of help with those interactions with parents and their kids. Like, for example, there was a four-year-old whose dad lost both of his legs in Iraq. And um, his son, you know, when you go to Walter Reed, there were, people weren't really thinking about what was happening with kids as they were coming to see their family members. Sure. And, um, there were a lot of people who'd been wounded and, and of course for kids, you know, they're just really curious about that sort of stuff. They don't, they don't completely understand. And this is the great thing about kids is we can help them understand a new normal pretty easily mm-hmm. because they can accept things pretty easily. So this little four-year-old, um, his dad had lost his legs and he was doing some different drawings And a big thing, nobody had talked to him, though, really about his dad losing his legs. Mm -hmm. There there weren't really conversations around that. Um, But in all of his drawings, he drew his dad's legs super big, Mm -hmm. even though they were gone then, because that's what was on his mind. Mm -hmm. What happened to my dad's legs? And, you know, he was able to be able to talk to some folks who and to do some things with his dad to have those conversations about what happened to his legs um, and how they were gone and what his dad could still do. Like, cause his dad could still throw the football to him. He could, you know, he like in that moment, there were those things that could still be done. Um, And so often what we do, particularly with young kids, is we just think they don't understand and that they're too young 
Whereas if we explain things really simply to them, they actually will just ask those. First of all, they're given permission then to talk about it so that then when mm -hmm. they have another question, they can come back. And um, it doesn't have to be like the elephant in the room because, you know, that what's central there is that relationship between the dad and the, that son. And they were able to facilitate that through facilitating conversations um, awesome. and, helping, and helping this little guy just understand that, yeah, his dad was a little bit different now, but he was still his dad. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, children, uh, um, I mean, I've seen a lot of trauma um, that has been, uh, I don't know, uh, in, inflicted or just caused to children. I've, I've worked in the, the NICUs and the PICUs um, and, and, and tend to see the, the worst of the worst cases uh, when I was working in EEG and neurology. And um but, you know, there there were family members that were typically there. And then we would have one of our resource people come in and I would see them interact with the children and they wow. would be educating the children about what was happening to their brother or sister who was hurt. And so, you know, after you I'm, I'm focusing on what I'm doing, putting my headset on the person and making sure it's all correct and that type of thing. But after you do it, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, you can just hear all the conversations going on and still do your job. And so I was I always marveled at those particular um, people in the children's hospital who would come in and work with the, the and help educate the children. And it really was, it was just simple statements and questions and, um, you know, whether it was giving them a toy they would play with, and then they would eventually associate and do something with the toy that you could see they were modeling what was happening, uh, you know, with, with their loved one, you know, or, um, again, just, just the conversations, but, and, and also those people were a lifeline to me. I'll just put that part in too. When I was working with very, very special needs, global delay patients, um, they would come in and then distract the patient and interact with them while I did what I had to do. Yeah. And uh, because it's, if you've seen, I would imagine in your field, you've seen a few EEGs or even maybe had, to, if you had students put EEGs on um, uh, subjects or you know what? not I would so much. Love well, to do some of that, but I have this, well. yeah, this, this movement here, is what uh -huh. you have nightmares about because <laughs> that that just erases a roughly 25 minutes worth of work of them grabbing the wires and taking them off their head. Uh -huh. And uh, so yeah. having that distraction is a big thing. But again, not not about me, but it's I you may have noticed I smiled when you said the elephant in the room um, because I only know two jokes in, in my entire life. I, I just I'm not a joke person. I like to sort of play around with situations, uh -huh. but I'm not a setup and punchline and whatever kind of thing. But I think this joke actually has a little bit of a neurological basis. So I, okay. I, I would tell it to typically the children, but the parents would always hear it. And so have you heard the one about Tarzan and the elephants? No. Okay. Simple one. I learned it when okay. I was five. I want to so, tell it to my grandson. Oh, you should. <laughs> and, and others will, will get it too. What did Tarzan say when he saw the elephants coming over the hilltop? 
No, I didn't. you're not really supposed to know. That's okay. Tar- Tarzan said, look, there's a bunch of elephants coming over the hilltop. <laughs> now, what did Tarzan say when he saw the elephants coming over the hilltop, but they were wearing dark sunglasses? Um, here, there's a bunch of elephants coming over the hill and they're wearing dark sunglasses. You, you might think, and you, and you're <laughs> thinking to yourself too, why am I doing this talk now when he's bringing up these weird things? But Tarzan didn't say anything because he couldn't recognize them with their dark sunglasses on. <laughs> so the, 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 I heard in one of my uh, conferences that I went to, when we had, um, I think this, I, this person probably was just an exercise physiologist uh, who was giving this talk, but he had said how when we give coaching cues and we're helping people to learn new behaviors or whatever it is, that our brains are wired to take in information in a very positive kind of way. And I don't mean positive, friendly or whatever. I mean, just sort of like the stating the positive or the, the negative and, and so much so that, you know, you can um, play this little game about, okay, picture an elephant, um, elephant face and nothing else is on it. So you can picture that. Yeah. And then I'll say, now don't picture an elephant's face with sunglasses. So you already now picture the face with sunglasses because you had that sort of positive wiring. So yeah. does, does that make any sense to some of the things and interactions you've had uh, with people that they still will process things? You know, you talk about the, the stress response and, and how things fire together. Um, when I was just reading through and listening to all your lectures, is these these ideas popped into my head again. And I don't know what they do anything at all with you, but there we go. There, there's my my joke and and possibly a link to neurology. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. Um, it would take me a second to really think about some of the um, applications. Of course. Of yeah. course. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for putting me on the spot, Robert. <laughs> yeah. There's see that that's a better question than if you could be in a tree in the forest, what kind of would you be and why? I think I, <laughs> yeah. I like <laughs> right. Anyway, oh, yeah, well that that actually I'm I'm jumping around, but I meant to ask you a little bit more about your high school experience growing up where you did in Northern Kentucky. I mean, I think those can be formative um, experiences that may have led you on this path that you've been on. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up um, going to that high school and, and, and those types of things, whatever you'd like to share. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just have to say that Adrian was one of my very best friends in high school. Oh, I see. I didn't even know that. I thought you just knew him. Well, that's, that's amazing. I know, okay. I know. We, and we, you know, we didn't see each other as much in college, but yeah, he kept trying to get me to come back and work at governor scholars. Oh, I don't doubt it at all. We, we talked a lot about that. Um, yeah. Um, so we both went to homes, which is mm-hmm. for me, the best place to ever have gone to high school. It oh. is an inner city high school. And, you know, for me, I feel like I got so much out of that. I grew up 
you know, pretty poor. I was the first person in my family to go to college. Mm. And um, I actually didn't know about college until my sophomore year with running. And I had schools that were talking to me about going to college there. Interesting. Um, and the reason I chose center actually is because of governor scholars. That's where it was. The very first right. year that it happened was the year Adrian and I went and um, he and I fought about who was going to go um, because neither one of us wanted to go. And then <laughs> both of us got selected and we both ended up going and it was one of my best experiences in high school. But for me, what stands out is running cross country and track. And, you know, my, you know, I ran with the boys and just my close friendships with them. And um, so was there not a female team or you were just so fast you had to run with the boys? Well, there weren't very many girls. And, you know, I began because I ran over the winter and no other girls ran over the winter at first mm. The the boys coach just kind of took me under his wing. You know, I started that mm -hmm. freshman year and, you know, he said, if you do this all winter and all summer by next season, you're going to be an all state runner. And he was right. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And he had a huge influence on me. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I used to be in fights a lot when I was younger. Um, a lot of people Bonda. know me now wouldn't think that that was true but um yeah i uh, you know well it's again it's 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 environment right um yeah, i mean yeah my, yeah my parents taught me you take care of yourself um, right. and i was a scrawny little kid so i had to i had to definitely have a big mouth and talk a lot um, mm -hmm. um but yeah um yeah my sister still talks about the time that there was this you know, big girl, my sister's like three years older and we were at boys and girls club and this girl threatened my sister. And I went over and said that, you know, I was going to beat her up. <laughs> and I'm sure when she walked away laughing because right. I would have been like in ninth grade or something. So I probably didn't even weigh 80 pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but scrappy, scrappy. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's interesting um i was new albany has really it's so small and the, the the districts all have sort of their share of neighborhoods that butt up against each other that are very different and you know i i literally lived on sort of the other side of the tracks um from a lot of my classmates but then that was the school that you know i could walk to and so i went there to this one particular school, but it had a lot of, you can't call New Albany inner city. I mean, it's such a small town, but it had a lot of the kids were, that were living in government housing. And a lot of, a lot of those kids were some of the best athletes. And I ended up being on all the teams with them. And so I would go to birthday parties um, in the projects and I would, you know, go play basketball there. And that's just where we were and never thought anything different of it. And, and a lot of them would come to my house for slumber parties and we just tear things up. And, and, but I, I do think that those, 
interactions I had with those kids, as opposed to being at, at schools where friends from my church went, where everybody was sort of more affluent and, you know, had, had much uh, nicer homes and those types of things. Um, I, I think it did shape things for me. And, and, you know, and I think honestly, it was from my dad's experience growing up and how he had to be sort of forgotten about because of a divorce and, and sort of the trauma he had from that. And that led him then to be in the, the ministry and then like doing social work. And it all sort of just added up. And, you know, and, and if, if you look at then the three boys in my family, I went into sort of teaching, so to speak, and then also working at a hospital. Another brother was a police officer. Another one was an artist and a musician. And it was all sort of about feeling and emotion and contacting people. And, and so yeah. those were some pretty formative times. So I'm glad that you had that really good experience there at, at homes. And, and certainly, and I did not know that you were so close to Adrian. I just knew that you both went there. So that, yeah. that's just fantastic. How, how hard is it? to get the grant money that you want to get to do the studies you need to do. Um, how, how hard is that? Is that, is that like a, um, you know, a, uh, an opportunity <laughs> that you're just so excited, you know, to go after this and you, it's, it's sort of a competitive thing and you get into it and there's this sort of juices that flow getting these grants. Actually, my dad was sort of that way with his grants when he would write them all the time, but, um, or, you know, was it just like, Oh my God, I gotta do another grant. I can't take it. What, how, or where, where do you land on those both places? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Both places. <laughs> Because, you know, for 20 years, my job was as a researcher and I was completely soft money funded. So if I didn't have a grant or, you know, different grants, then I didn't have a job. Mm. And so that could be stressful at times. And, you know, it was hard to have to chase the money somewhere um, or, you know, just be always chasing the money. So I sure, you know, what I wanted to do was baby massage research. And there's not a ton of money out there for baby, you know, I mean, right. Like that's, that's not very easy to get funding for. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, that was a big thing I wanted to do to learn more about it. And I also wanted to just do more things with vulnerable, you know, families who are vulnerable for different Mm. reasons, lots of times due to poverty. Um, And think about how to promote kids outcomes because there's Mm -hmm. never a reason like for example for a baby or a young child to come from an orphanage developmentally delayed um doesn't matter if they're you know i mean the orphanages that i worked with there was very often like a one to seven ratio of one caregiver to like seven babies um but that doesn't mean that a baby needs to be developmentally delayed. It's just more an issue of education for the caregiver. Of, right. You know, and, and for the orphanage like system overall, the director or the, yeah, the director, you know, things that we can do to facilitate this child's development. Mm-hmm. But so, so, you know, grants, grants are like the lottery in a way you throw your, mm-hmm. it's like you throw your hat in, or your name in the hat and there's a chance they'll pick it out and there's a chance they won't. And sometimes I've gotten funding and I've been like, well, I actually 
did not expect to get that funding at all. I just threw my name in at the last minute because like, I mean, two years ago, I wrote a grant like that and we got funded for $450,000. And, and it, I decided to write the grant less than two weeks before it was due. And you only had to write five pages. And I was like, I'm just going to do it because I, you know, it was a little bit of craziness for two weeks. And then, and then it got funded. Right. And then I have grants right. that, you know, I felt like, you know, I've worked on for two and a half months and felt like it was a really strong grant and scored terribly. Well, you know, in the um, informal education world, um, you know, we always had to have some sort of grant to get us through um, at, at the Louisville Science Center, or I also worked for a few years with the um, American Lung Association. And, you know, those, it, it really seemed to me in going to the different conferences that we would go to that, you know, my um, bosses, the various positions, I could always see them not schmoozing, but, you know, they were doing active pursuit of collaboration um, with people they met at these conferences. And, you know, and that's what one of them, you know, said back to me is like, look, this is all about collaborating with people. And, you know, you're not just this, you're not on this island all by yourself. And the more you collaborate, the better it is. And of course I was, you know, I, I've got this, you know, um, dichotomy of being sort of an introverted extrovert <laughs> where I can be out on a field. I can be in front of 500 people doing a presentation, but you put me in a room with four people and I don't know any of them, you know, it, years ago, I would just, just want to go in the corner and put my head down because I just couldn't think of how I was going to interact with these people. Um, luckily now I've been in so many situations and, and met so many different people. And really the thing that always makes me happy is having some kind of connection to someone. And really this is kind of like the impetus for the podcast. I just, I want to learn more about what these people are talking about. Like, this sounds really cool to me. So why not just have a conversation about it and see what, what I can learn from it. Uh, so where I'm going with that, I don't know, but it's oh the, the grant. So, you know, I've been on the end of never being able to write a grant. Um, I went to some national conferences where I presented and they always had a, you know, an early seminar for grant writing. And I was like, that's it, man. I'm an English major. I'm going to go to this. I'm going to learn the skill. I would love to write some grants. Um, no one ever attended. I was the only person who would ever sign up like five years in a row. <laughs> so my, so my, you know, my, they, they couldn't pay for me to be the one person there in the room going yeah, there the extra yeah, day. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but yeah, but I, I, I've been in grants though, where I'm the the person working and, and then, you know, the grants dry up or we just didn't, you know, it's just the life of it ran out and you just have to alert, you know, look for that next thing. So you talk about the soft money. Yeah. I completely understand that. And, um, but yeah, I, um, I, I think it's, I don't know. I, I think I would enjoy the competitive nature of it, but I can also see, where when you had this five page paper to write um, to do this, this could be almost like, 
you know, the analogy for me would be like an actor going in for a role they really don't want. And they just, they're just going to put themselves out there best they can and walk away. And that's kind of the way that you tackled, you know, these five pages, like you could write that in your sleep while, you know, dog paddling in a pool, um, five pages on what you need to do for something. I would imagine for as much as you have talked and researched and that kind of stuff. So I think it's just fantastic though, that you're able to do that. That's got to feel like such a big win. Uh, Well, yeah, it's definitely a win to get, you know, to be able, you know, what we were doing with this project is three years ago or almost three years ago now, I guess 2020. So two and a half years ago, we got $626,000 from the Utah legislature to develop a new intervention. And that was only to, well, actually it was not for development. We didn't get development money. We got implementation money. Mm. So there was a lot of development that happened like in spare time. Okay. Uh, it was only available in English. And we have oh. a, a fairly large um, Latino population here. And sure. And I wanted to be able to provide it in Spanish. And this grant provided that ability to do that. Oh, so that's great. It felt really, really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that grant also has allowed us you know, I made all these different videos about child development, the impact of trauma, and then specific ideas for what parents could do to support their kids. And the grant is paying for those to be put into this beautiful, like chalkboard technology. Really? So then instead of me on Zoom as a talking head being there and, you know, not being very engaging, it's it's beautiful. It's really well done. So when you say chalkboard, you mean is it like animated? Is that is that what you mean by yeah, chalkboard? Have you, seen it? have you ever seen the videos where it's like as somebody's talking, somebody's drawing what they're talking oh, yeah. about? Yeah, That's the, what the, it is. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Khan Academy. Uh, if you've oh, seen yeah. those guys. Yeah. And I, and I think, I don't even know, Zoom has a new whiteboard um, feature. I've not played around with it yet. I think when I get to a point where I'm coaching, I'm going to pr- try to use that. But um, yeah, it's really it's really good. It's it's funny how technology and looking at something that isn't an actual person um, can be more effective in some cases, or I won't say more effective, but a good supplement. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, sure. Then 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 watching and seeing the real person. Yeah. Totally. Because you're just, you're captivated because you don't know what's coming next in the drawing. (laughs) (laughs) Look at the, yeah, it's, that's right. Well, that, gosh, that brings me back to, um, you know, some of my favorite TV programs when I was a child and uh, how, you know, I was a big watcher of what Captain Kangaroo and Sesame Street. And then when, um, did you remember Zoom? Actually, this is another, um, I think it was called Zoom. Like a um, it wasn't a cartoon. No, it was. No, I'm sorry. The Electric Company. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, the the TV show that uh, Morgan Freeman was one of the actors that was in it. Rita yeah, Moreno yeah. Uh, was in it, and they would always do uh, two syllable words and or and and pronounce you know the first side of it, then the other side, and they would come together and form. Yeah, the bring world. them together. Yeah, I mm-hmm. totally remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love those 
um, experiences and, and, and just sort of, and I, I could sit there and just watch those for days. Um, yeah. because it went, you know, I would eventually go off and run and do other things, but that was, that was sort of my jam as a little kid. Um, I've got a few more kind of silly questions, but I'd rather get to <laughs> some of these serious ones. I don't know when I was writing this. I just had this in my mind. I will, I will tell you that I just flashed on another memory. One of the things my dad did in his job as the executive director for the Interfaith Community Council is his his um, organization ran some called the Child Development Center. And it was daycare, but yeah. at the same time, it was meant to be, you know, instructional um, and, and uh, informative. And uh, just just remember that. I remember it was um, my dad always saying, got to go by the Child Development Center and Anyway, was it, uh, just, was it affiliated with the military? No, no. I think this was all still just, and he, he could have been the one that actually created it. I'm not really sure because oh, okay. he was a youth minister while he was in seminary um, here, here in Louisville. And so he had a lot of things he would do with children. Um, so that, that could have been, or it could have been a national program. I'm not really sure, um, that they yeah. just picked up on and did, they, they were funded, um, heavily by the United way. And, um, so a lot of things would grow out of that too, but, um, yeah, anyway, there, there we go. Um, when you, you say that, I'll just add in one little political thing here. Do, it do. would be amazing if as a country, we would begin to subsidize our child development centers because, they, you know, like child development staff get paid mm. like eleven to thirteen dollars an hour, and they oh, might yeah. have college degree. It's it's just crazy, and the work that they do. I mean, they're brain engineers. They're right, really promoting the development of young kids. Right, right. Well, here here's a funny one for you, and this is germane to what you're talking about. As, as I was listening to and watching your various videos, um, and I started thinking on, on these lines of, you know, this infamous massage is so critical, not just for kids that are in an orphanage or, you know, but it's critical for all these interactions that you would want to have for people everywhere. And then... You know, how would you do a longitudinal study on this that would be effective, that would make a difference? And, you know, you've got you have to almost have like this wave of all the the children that get that get born into this this methodology. And then, you know, you'd hope that they would be able to replicate and, and move it on. But then you still have the resistance, you know, the wave breaks against the shore of you know, the, the people, the, the adults who didn't have this opportunity, or they've got their trauma that they have been able to, to go. With. And all of these thoughts I was thinking as I was killing myself doing 15 bag wet leaves at my mother-in-law's, I was raking them and it was, it was breaking me down as I was listening to all these things. And, and I'm telling you all this because I noticed on one of your videos that no one had made a comment. There wasn't a like on it. And it was an incredible video. It was just so moving. <laughs> I was crying as I was listening to it. And next thing I know, I'm writing on there like a crazed madman. You know, <laughs> this isn't happening because the wheels won't give the money and everybody's so greedy. And, and I just, <laughs> just, just really just had to like let it all go and into that. But it, it, and then it struck me. 
it's like if you get exposed to something this critical and you think of it as being so important, like I have now, it, it's and and then you can get a sense of the daunting task of spreading it um, to as many people as you would want it to be spread to. I tell you, Vonda, it's almost like I went through the stages of death as I got, I was, I had disbelief in the beginning, you know, like this can't be happening. This, this is so important. You know, why can't this happen? And then I went through various stages. The next thing I know I was bargaining. What can I do <laughs> that would be, you know, helpful. And and then finally, I'm just like, I'm just completely angry. And that's when I start writing, you know, the, the notes for the YouTube yeah. things. And so all these stages of death, I know you're familiar probably with that term, um, yeah. you know, the, the grief that you have. And uh, anyway, it's just, it just seems so important to me. And it's, and it's just something that my point goes to is there still some sort of stigma that goes with this type of application and, and support for infants um, that some people just don't want to, you talk about, there's not that much money out there for infant massage research. Um, Have you, has you, have you run into that type of um, roadblocks, let's say? And maybe you don't categorize it that way, but, you know, I guess yeah. let's say what sort of roadblocks do you run into then? Well, I think the biggest roadblock is that babies can't vote. Oh you know, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we, and that's where I've been thinking to myself, what we really need to do is we need to mobilize grandparents who are in mm-hmm. like the AARP. And those are the people who have a lot of power to be able, if they understood the importance of some of these different things for babies in those first months and couple years of life. You know, we, I mean, we're 41st out of 41st on most indicators of functioning for babies, toddlers, school-age kids, um, adolescents, adults. We we might be one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but in terms of our mental health and our well-being, we're rock bottom. Right. And I would argue it goes back to the very beginning of not respecting, um, not valuing families and children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that would be what I would say, um, because Listen, I think that's the bigger thing. Right. Right. I mean, I. I think there's almost a dichotomy or a, you know, a juxtaposition of families who might be pigeonholed into saying you are very pro family and you want this unit um, to be what's going to be the strongest thing for children to grow. And, but then on the other side of that, then you've got the broken families who have their argument and, and, and maybe those two people who represent um, those two groups don't exactly see eye to eye and see how they're both looking for the same thing. Um, You know, it's just that this, this political way of saying, well, you have to have a, a father in the home, you know, with the parent, in order for this child to fully be able to develop. And that's not necessarily what you're saying, but I think that's, I just, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but um, 
So helpful. Yeah, I, I don't know, but the, I, I like the I like the grandparent idea. Yeah, because uh, I, I I've definitely seen in the hospital um, a lot of grandparents are the primary caregivers, and in many cases it is for the children who have a lot of issues, um, or I've got a lot of grandparents who end up being foster parents. Um, I mean, just it, it's a high number. Uh, now I'm saying this all anecdotally. I don't have any real, you know, evidence to, to support it. But in my, you know, my times of of coming in at 3 a.m. to work with a, a baby, um, you know, I have to ask the relationship of the the caregivers, foster parents, and they're already, you know, they've already had their kids, their grandparents, everywhere else. And so, anyway, I, I'm on a, a a roll of not really making much sense uh, to, to bring oh. anything in, but. You're, you're totally making sense. Yeah, I think that we would be a totally different country if we valued children and families. And it might, yes. easier, it might make it easier for some of those families who have really tough, a tough way to go to, um, to thrive easier. If our yeah. 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 I, do what know are you... about, I just have to ask you one thing. Yeah, ask, ask you as much as you want. Do you know anything about universal basic income? No. Tell me all about it. Oh, gosh. You just have to look that up. Well, like, I won't even go there. I'll just talk about the child tax credit. So the child tax credit that was happening during COVID. And mm-hmm. so there is somebody who has gotten research or who's gotten funding to kind of look at the impact of giving something similar. So like. And they're giving $333 per month for, I think, four years. And mm-hmm. people were randomized into this project and they are collecting data for four years on the impact. And the people who they're looking at the people who got that $333 a month, I think it is, versus people who got $20 a month. And mm-hmm. What they're finding is like on every indicator, they're just doing so much better. They, there was, there's always the concern that people are going to um, spend this on alcohol, drugs, on right, things frivolous like things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, they're getting, they get a card um, and it just gets reloaded into their bank account every month. And right. so the researchers can track what's happening with the money. Oh, and, yeah what they're finding is they're spending it on good things for kids and the kids outcomes are much better. So just a small investment, you know, there's been other work with universal basic income. And what they've found is that just by giving this cash incentive every month um, that child abuse rates go down, the health outcomes increase, like, it it just seems to me like wow. a no-brainer. When you look at the amount of money we spend to fix all of our problems in the United States, if we did more prevention, like and we're we're like in terms of child poverty, we're one of the highest. If mm-hmm. we did more, if we did more to take care of children and families, then you know, we we might have much lower rates of child abuse and neglect and much better health outcomes and for sure, much better mental health outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely agree. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I I think the 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 idea about you're only as strong as your weakest link, um, you know, bodes true uh, when it comes to uh, you know helping those who need help, and and you know where where we will you know certainly today uh, politically you know. And some some factions push towards you know me 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 and and give me all this kind of stuff because you know I can take it you know there's the the the, the civility that has been lost um, and this idea that you would actually help others and you know when then you have some politicians say well they're just gonna you know waste the money they're not gonna use it and why should I do this. Um, it's just the the choices, you know. I <laughs> what's the phrase? Make good choices. Uh-huh. You know, it, it just it means so much. Um, I think if you keep going back to development of the child and the experiences and and making you know, an effort to have um, a whole person. You know, not can't you can't be free of stress, obviously, but c- capable of handling stress, and yeah. you know, and and have that strength, um, uh, then to be brought into the educational system, and you know, be supported that way. Uh, I mean, it, w- it would just be revolutionary, and and the idea that it could all start with infant massage, I think, just scares people. They they don't, you know, I, I just think that people would be resistant to that. Like, oh, I can't just touch my baby like that. I mean, that's just weird. Yeah. Where you know how essential it is to make that that connection. And I really liked listening to both you and some other people when I watch their um, talks about it is even though the child can't communicate with you um, at a certain level because they're so young, you're still asking their permission um, to give them a, give them a massage. And, you know, it's, it's those nonverbal cues that yeah. they learn and so much that are, that are so vital. And, um, you know, and they're powerful I, communicators. Oh, they are so yeah. much, yeah. so much. And, you know, I, I don't have children. I have taught a lot. I think about just like most teachers, I think about the people I've taught and coached as sort of my kids, and the interactions I have with them and you know, I just want to do anything I can for them. But in my family, it's my crazy dogs that I have where I've had two dogs where you would think if you saw us, we were the dog whisperers in our town. They were the most well-behaved. They were just just angels. They would sit on top of our 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 steps in Halloween and wear their costumes and put their noses in put their noses in the children's bags. We have the photographs of it, and all the kids would pet them, you know. And then I've got the dog I have now, who I keep telling my wife, and I think she agrees with me. He, you know, he was abandoned. He was severely um, underweight. Um, I, I'm almost certain he came from possibly some sort of fighting ring. Because he is a um, pit bull and a German shepherd combined. So he has two of the strongest bites uh, that there is. And, and, you know, and so anyway, we adopted him, um, brought him in and fed him, got him well. But Vonda, he wouldn't look at us for four months. 
he was so damaged. And it, it just reminded me of you talking about your children that you worked with. And, and I mean, literally, he just couldn't, just couldn't do it. And, and one of the things I learned in training with him, and believe me, I've gone to five different trainers to train me how to work with him right, was right. just, was, was just the look at me, um, you, and I'll offer him a treat, but he only gets it if he looks at me. And now he and I just melt in each other's eyes. And, you know, when we go on these walks, he still may be troubled to deal with and be, be reactive and all that kind of stuff. But if I just give him the little look at me cue, he stops, looks at me, and then he forgets all that other stuff. And it just, anyway, so, I mean, you know, what are the look at me cues (laughs) that, that all the parents and everybody else can do? when it comes to helping their, their kids where they don't have the connections. I mean, it's infant massage. I mean, that's, it seems like it to me. Well, infant massage is a great way that one of the things I love about baby massage is that um, we teach parents to pay attention to their baby's cues and to kind of understand then what their babies are saying to them. And that's right. not something we really think about a lot here in the U S because like we, we think these are just babies, you know, they lay, they cry, they eat, they poop, they sleep sometimes. Um, And the reality is they actually are really powerful communicators. You know, one Mm. of the things I have to say to you, one of the things that is so shocking to me when I think about how smart babies are, like if you've got a newborn baby and you're like, they're in that quiet alert state where they're just kind of taking in the world. They're looking around and just really calm. If you stick your tongue out at them and make sure they see it, give them a second to kind of think about it and maybe do it a couple different times. They're like, not every baby's going to do this, but so often what happens is that baby will begin to like play with their tongue and potentially stick their tongue back out at you. And to me, I think about for a newborn baby, first of all, they have to know they're looking at you. You have this face. They know that they also have a face. They have this tongue. And and they, they can't see that well anyway, right? Right. And they have to be within 7 to 12 inches. Yeah. Right. So close. Right. But it's mind boggling to me that they... Like they, there's a lot happening in that little brain for them mm-hmm. to be able to figure out from your face and then imitate you. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. Right. And it, I mean, that has to be somewhere within our DNA. I mean, I mean, it's I, it, this nature versus nurture, you know, kind of argument. Um, but, but I would say this, this replication of what you see, um, I, you know, yeah. there, there is, there is very little thought that is happening with the child in that, that case, it's right. more, I'm going to repeat exactly what I saw you do yeah. and, you know, evolutionarily and whatever. Now, all of a sudden you have an advantage, um, of learning, uh, it's already taken place. I think, I, I just think it's, it's incredible. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's mind-boggling. What? So, what is? I mean, I've already just asked this, but 
what is the study that you are doing right now? Or, well, actually, you said you're on sabbatical. So I take, okay. So let's, 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 let's pretend I was paying attention. <laughs> Which wow. I was. I, I'm so, doing, we're doing a study right now. Right, right, right. And, and what is that? And then if, you know, we'll, we'll play the fantasy game here. If money really wasn't that much of an object and you could do whatever study you want to do that you think is going to make the most impact. Um, are those the same things? Are those the same things right now that you're looking at and that you want to do? Or is, is what you're doing a part of that, you know, to lead into more and more and more study or where, where does all that stand with you? Yeah. So, so maybe I'm going to tell you something I've been doing for the past few years um, mm-hmm. and how I got to social work. So I've always worked with vulnerable families because those are the families that for me, I feel like can be impacted the most. You know, those are the kids, those are the families where the kids are the most at risk in terms of succeeding in life. And um, and I used to be a child welfare worker in Kentucky before I moved to Utah. and. I, you know, I really felt like those families in child welfare or who I met in the child welfare system loved their kids just as much as any other parent, but they very often had had some hard things that happened to them and they, um, they just didn't know how to support their kids' development. So fast forward to the past six years, actually, um, when I, you know, I got a grant six years ago to do an evaluation with our family support, our local family support center here. And what we were doing is we were evaluating the impact of services for kids, particularly under the age of six, who had experienced traumatic events. Mm -hmm. And what, what we were finding is that, of course, treatment helps. So these kids start getting services. They start getting better. We see more um, protective factors like more self-regulation and those more protective factors predict resilience in the face of additional trauma. But what we were not seeing was the change in the parent-child relationship. And to me, that's the number one place where we can impact that child's future going Mm -hmm. forward. And in the meantime, there was a study that was published in 2019 that looked at for kids who had experienced trauma. So for kids who have experienced trauma, the more trauma they've experienced, the more likely they are to have negative outcomes in adulthood, particularly negative health outcomes. So somebody who's experienced four or more ACEs, for example, is at a much higher rate or risk of heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, um, sexually transmitted diseases, um, suicide attempts, obesity. So both mental and physical health risk. And if we look at their um, academic achievement, they're also much more likely to have problems in school. The more mm-hmm. trauma they've experienced. Um, no, what, what was the term that you used? You just 
say I, I'm trying to four aces. What was oh, it? Aces. Yeah. You, you, I think you're talking about their their evaluation score. What was that? Um, oh, actually, I, I lost you there. Hold on. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, try it again. Okay. They're called Adverse Childhood Experiences. Okay. So A-C-E-S. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. Thank you for No, stopping. it's okay. Yeah. Um, so there, there's just some groundbreaking work that was published in 1998 that has really influenced a lot of my more recent work because, you know, trauma in kids is actually preventable. And one of the best ways to prevent trauma in kids is to educate the caregivers who care for them. Mm-hmm. Because when parents know better, they do better. Yeah. And it's just, um, you know, it's not just a matter of knowing better, but also having additional supports. So there's been another study that came out in 2019 that was looking at the impact of positive childhood experiences on outcomes in adulthood. And what they found was for kids who had more positive childhood experiences. So maybe having like their parent, their family has their back. They do things enjoyable with their families. Maybe they've got traditions in their family that they engage Mm -hmm. in those sorts of things. Um, the more positive childhood experiences they have, the better they do in adulthood, regardless of the number of traumatic experiences they've had. So you could have amazing. eight, nine, or 10 traumatic events and have five, six, or seven positive events in childhood. And you're much less likely to have mental health challenges like um, depression, anxiety, those sorts of things in early suicide ideation in early adulthood than a person who has zero adverse childhood experiences and zero or one positive childhood experiences. So isn't mm. that crazy it that is. somebody could have so much adversity and yet if they've got this positive family there to support them, they're much more likely to be okay in early adulthood. Wow. So that's what we went to the Utah legislature with is um, we developed an intervention that's focused around positive childhood experiences, just increasing fun times between parents and their kids. So what we do is we have a 12 week program and um, we meet For me, the pandemic, the silver lining of the pandemic has been that our intervention had to be provided on Zoom. And that's exactly where it should be provided. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you've got your family all together. They're not in a center with a lot of other families and kids, but they're just there with their family. Sure, sure. So what we do is we meet for 12 weeks. We have four different classes. One's for parents and their zero to two-year-olds. Another class for three to five-year-olds. Another one for six to 11. And another one for 12 to 18-year-olds. And we meet every other week. uh, And what we do is in our time together, um, we 
just have fun. We take dinner. So we're DoorDash delivery drivers. We take the food that they're going to have for the evening, you know, their meal for the evening. And then we also take the activities for the evening. Mm. And then, you know, we do different things. We need we do some things focused on mindfulness called mind body bridging. So that's an evidenced way of um, it's basically an evidence evidence based form of mindfulness. And we do lots of like modulation activities. So to teach parents and kids both about self-regulation, because of mm. course, parents are key to kids' self-regulation. Mm -hmm. They very often don't understand it. Kids essentially learn self-regulation from their parents. And when their gotcha. parents don't have it, kids typically don't have it either. Right, right. It hasn't been modeled. Yeah. And yeah. so, so, and then we have activities. So like for our um, three to five-year-old class, one of the things we do, like we try to do simple things with families that don't cost a lot of money. Um, like our three to five-year-old class, one week, what we do is we, we, there are these like little, like rubbery animals that um, cost 65 cents and we freeze them in an ice cube. And then this is for three to five-year-old kids, even though we do this activity with our six to 11-year-old kids too. And the, the goal for the family is to rescue their animal. Everybody oh in the family gets an animal and, you know, they roll a die. And when they roll it, like if they get a one, maybe they have to put salt on it. If they get a two, maybe they have to just hold it in their hand. They get a three, they pass it to every member of the family. They get a four, they've got to put it down their shirt. I uh, love it. Yeah. So different things, but really simple. And we do like a chopped challenge where we take in some ingredients and they work together or as part of teams to um, create some masterpiece. Um, but those mm -hmm. are all things to have fun together. And that's the goal is to have fun. So that's what we do in our Zoom meeting, which is what we consider our, our in-person meeting. And then mm -hmm. in the off week, they learn about, um, you know, for that age group, brain development, what's happening in the brain. They learn about self-regulation, social development, cognitive development, language development, and physical development. And um, language development is for the zero to two and three to five-year-old classes. And then we do a healthy peer relationships instead of language development for six to 11 and 12 to 18. Mm. We've got evidence-based information about what's happening during this time period for a child's development. And then we also have a video on each of those topics, the impact of trauma on the child. And then we have another video for each of those different areas for specific ideas, what parents can do to support their child's development. So we usually have like 10 to 20 ideas um, so, you know, some of them, the parents like, oh, that's really stupid. I don't like that idea, but there should be some ideas that they do like, right. and, and, you know, we're, we're following them up a year later and what we find at post-test, um, and our results seem to just get stronger over time. Even a year later, wow. our results seem to be stronger than they are right at the end of the 12 week intervention, um, 
but we see the um, nurturing and attachment relationship between the parents is increased. The family functioning is increased. The parent mental health, um, like their overall functioning is increased. The um, parent hostility toward their child is decreased. Right. And the um, parent-child conflict is decreased. The kids' um, self-regulation is increased. And what we're finding is those impacts are lasting one year later. You, you couldn't possibly get those results a year later unless they're continuing doing what you have shown them to do and more than likely infusing in their own versions of it. So yeah. now, now they're, you know, they're owning it, so to speak, um, yeah. in, you know, in, in such a long way. That's, that's just fantastic. We, um, we, we have qualitative data from parents also, because we ask them, you know, what they've learned, the impact on them as a parent, and then the impact on the parent child relationship. And they, they actually say that they really focus on the importance of time with their kids. They don't need to be doing anything huge, like spending mm-hmm. a lot of money, but it's just spending time. And then another thing that they bring out is the importance of their own self-regulation as a parent mm-hmm. and how that Im- impacts their kids and has helped them. And it's it's just been really fun to, and empowering to see that this intervention really does seem like it's having a strong impact on these families. Right. I, I'd say the, um, not so much jargon, but verbiage that you use when we were trying to set up our time to do this talk, you had talked about traveling the intervention to do. And, this, and I think, you know, in my mind, the popular term for intervention is like, Oh gosh, is someone needing an intervention in her family? They've got oh. to corner somebody who's got some bad health habits and, you yeah. know, and then after a while I start thinking that that can't be it. And then as I continue to read and, and, and watch your, it's like, Oh, okay. I get it. I understand what you mean by intervention, but assume people who are going to, you know, tune in, so to speak, or download the, they'll understand what you're talking about with that too. And, um, you know, it, it, there was one other thing I wanted to think about and, and thank you again for doing it as long as you have this, this is fantastic. Um, one other thing I was thinking about, uh, two things, strike that, two things. One is I, I just haphazardly landed on the title of this podcast. Everything else was taken. I mean, it's just, you know, there are so many podcasts out there, and I think that's actually a good thing. Um, a lot of them are are great. Some of them aren't so. That's just, you know, that's the way life is. Yeah. But the, the titles, you know, it's just like, uh, if you remember uh, Pat Blanford. Uh, who was a year ahead of us. Yeah. Pat, I, we went to a little reunion and I was talking to him because he was, a, he contributed into my political podcast. And oh, Pat man. said, well, what, what you should do is just call it overheard. Just say overheard with oh. Robert Beery. And I was like, what a great title. Looked it up yes. 15, 15 different overheard podcasts and, oh, you know, and, and variations yeah. of overheard and over here and, you know, all these types of things. And I just, and I'm just so quite literally for a year, I've been searching for a title for yeah. this podcast. And I just landed on that track because of 
I think it's a very more colloquial way of saying what maybe a philosopher or a researcher might say when they say it follows. Um, You know, what what I have just said, it follows that this would happen. And and really what you're saying is that makes sense. Um, I I think when you say it follows or you say that 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 term, well, that tracks, you know, and that is what I'm trying to get to in these conversations with people is I feel like what you're saying to your your audiences, your students and the people that you're interacting with, these are the things that just make sense. Um, they, they may be highfalutin in the world of academics and have all these controls and, and the way you have to look at it. You got to have grant money. But it all starts with this idea that it tracks and makes sense. We need to do yeah. these types of things. So I love the fact that you're doing that. I, I love that we're having this conversation. Um, this is just, you know these kind of conversations are so meaningful. Um, and, and I just sort of, I don't desperately, but I need them. So I'm really yeah. happy, you know, that we're doing this. And one of the things that I have found when I've interviewed other people, actually the gentleman I'm going to interview uh, tomorrow night as a journalist, and he also a, um, a professor at Kent State and teaches journalism and TV studies and these things. But he yeah. has mentioned to me, that he wishes there was more curiosity in his students um, that he talks to because he exposes them to the history of um, TV cinema and the impact certain things have had. And it rarely does he have any more than maybe two students who kind of get it and show that curiosity. And, And I thought about that when, I was listening to you um, talk about mentoring students and their research and, and their books that they do. And you get to have their um, initial sort of sample rating and you work with them on that. And it continues on in their projects. And I, I guess I think I know the answer to this, but I'm wondering, have you ever thought of it or where do you think curiosity stands as a, as a strong personality trait for a researcher and a student? Uh, so I think, first of all, I, I guess I, I think that um, students have a lot happening. And I think- You're taking up forum already. This is why yeah. you're a mentor of the year. Okay, go ahead. I'm just teasing. I, I think that it's true that there, you know, there's less space for curiosity when they're really stressed with lots of things. And I think that that is definitely Mm. true of students. And I also think that there are, I don't know, that we can set the environment in a way so that they don't actually have an option. Um, And I can tell you, I've had students who have been kicking, I've drug kicking and screaming into curiosity, but, and some Mm -hmm. who actually never got curious or, you know, they just did this because they had to. But the more common thing that I see is, um, and particularly like my research methods class, it's the, you know, it's the hardest class in our social work um, curriculum for the undergraduate students. And they dread taking this class. They're not interested in it. They are doers. They're not, they don't want to be doing right. research. That's boring. Um, and so 
like I always require them to pick something that they are going to research and I have them for two semesters. So I have a great possibility. Mm -hmm. And what I see happen is somewhere between the first and the second semester, they go from doing this because it's a requirement for a class to doing it because they really, they're invested. Mm -hmm. They're curious and they want to know what the answers are. Okay. And and I, I really think that, you know, by letting them be in charge of what they do, that gets a lot of their interest. So okay. you know, I like, I have parameters around it, right. but within that they get to decide. And, and I think that's a pretty huge thing for students. Well, yeah, I think that's the whole um, idea of occasion. I'm trying to remember the exact group. Um the Imaginarium. I, I'm trying to think who it is. There's a group in San Francisco. It's a science center that uses um, inquiry education um, to be their sort of foundation of the way that they uh, will facilitate learning. And and, and it's always, you know, uh, it, again, there are parameters, um, but it, it tends to be very student led. And in terms of what they, they go to. So I think, yeah, that's, I think that is a way that in a good way, we can manufacture the setting that uh, promotes curiosity um, and, and, or just term we use before ownership uh, of what they're doing and gets them excited. And, you know, it really wasn't, I'm thinking about my various uh, schooling that I've done and I had a little bit of curiosity about my major uh, in undergrad. Um, it was really the other classes that I took that I had way more curiosity and that I couldn't major in at that school. So linguistics, um, I love taking that class yeah. and breaking down. I was very um, interested in the grammar of it, but then also exactly how things were pronounced. And, and I love that. But really wasn't until I got into grad school then as now I became much more invested and had much more freedom, you know, to really um, look at a topic and get into it. And I was able to apply everything I wanted to do to coaching. So that just fit me perfectly. And, you know, and as I thought about potentially being um, a PE teacher at some point or being on on a college faculty for that, all I could think of was all the amazing research I wanted to do, you know, I was so curious and I was doing um, Scottish games uh, on games where they wear the kilt and throw the trees and the cabers. And and I thought, man, would it be cool to do a unit on that and study, you know, the history of Scottish games along with this and all the culture and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, Yeah. I think I I'm glad that that you see it that way. And, And I do know that you definitely have students who are willing to do the work, which is fantastic. Um, they push themselves through, but they don't necessarily, you know, grab on that curiosity. And, and I would just tend to believe that people in your field are the ones that still just have sort of an infinite amount of curiosity, uh, when it comes to, well, this looks like something I should look at. And wouldn't that be interesting to find out the results, you know, of what I do. So, you know, goodness for people like you who want to do that. And, and 
I'm rambling a little bit here again too, but you know, there's, there's such a, uh, a culture now of sort of anti-academics and, you know, people saying, well, what do they know? They're, they don't, they don't have, you know, contact with reality, blah, blah, blah. Right. And when, when, when the reality is to get to where you have to get as an academic, you have to get very real. <laughs> you, you have to really know your subject and know the people that it if it affects people and that kind of stuff. And I, it's, it's such oh, a dichotomy. Yeah, yeah, would yeah. They would. yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I just, I wish there was more uh, PR. I, that's what I kept thinking when I was doing those leaves and thinking about thinking how many people knew you were doing and how important it was. And like, she just needs a good PR campaign and <laughs> the, the word needs to get out. But, you know, actor Alan Alda, um, had a podcast for a while. I don't know if he still does it, but where he worked with researchers to help them translate what they were doing to the general public. Really? Yes. Fantastic, fantastic podcast. And, uh, you know, he's, he's certainly the, the person for me growing up watching mash, you know, other than his sort of tomfoolery, he was always just the, the really deep heart, yeah. Uh, of, of a person who wanted to help and uh, just, just love that. But that's what he, you know, he really is that kind of person. And yeah. uh, I wish I could remember the name of that podcast, but if you probably just re- looked up Alda and translating research, it would more than likely pop up yeah. and, and you would see that. Um, I anyway, I need to write myself a note to look that up. Do it, do it. Yeah. And did you, so I know you were a psychology major, right? Yeah. Did you take Dr. Brown's personality class? Is I that did. is that ring a bell? Yeah. Um, I remember taking that, and and I think that was one of the first times. And I'm thinking about what you've been talking about, where I heard the term hardiness um, as maybe not a personality trait so much because I don't know if I can say that correctly academically. But I want to say that's one of the first times I saw it because then when I was in grad school and we were looking at more health behavior counseling, I remember just reading and I've got a, a tiny bit of a photographic memory. I remember the page and where it was and there was a graphic really? above it. it. It does. It's never helped me. <laughs> it's never <laughs> it's, it's never helped me other than, yeah. other than I can recall it to tell my students where they need to look. Um, I taught weight training. It's page 138 graph a, you're going to see all the different intensities. That's where you're going to go to find that. And then just stare at me. Why do you know that? Well, I teach it to hundreds and hundreds of people, but, (laughs) but anyway, it's, so it's just, I remember seeing that hardiness term and, you know, I, as humans do, I kind of applied it to myself. Like, am I hardy enough? You know, things really get to me and I don't, maybe I don't cope. So I had a way to, investigate that in my head and whatever else, but it has stuck with me for so long that that term, and it really seems like what you're talking about and the findings that you're having with the children is that then the one particular one where even if they had not, um, even if they experienced a lot of these ACEs that you're talking about, if they had the good foundation of support, 
um, they were, I'll use my term, very hardy, so to speak, in being able to cope with that. You yep. know, and, and again, as a, as a coach, it's, it just feels like it's like practice is so important, yep. real life or not. You know, it's, it's if you yep. can go through these ideas and, and think them through, they can just help you so much. So um, it doesn't surprise me, um, but I'm delighted to, yep. to hear that that's a, a finding that you guys are having. You know what? Another thing that I think is really applicable, Rob, is the whole visualization piece. Oh yeah. If you like, I think that in a way is similar because it's like through your relationship as a coach, you're kind of um, like hypnot, like not really hypnotizing, but you're kind of. Oh, I know what you mean. You're putting. You're rehearsing. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like my, I I coached. I went back and coached for my inner city team, and, Mm. and we were not like one of the top teams in the valley or you know in my area but we went out like before our conference cross country meet we went out and we practiced like every for every day for 2 weeks on the cross country course and like and I would say to them like this is what you need to do here and we would totally visualize it mhm it came to right the day of the conference and it had rained that day mm. or like right before. And so there was this one part where it was really muddy. And, and so I told my runners that they needed to make sure they were on the side in that section because they, it wouldn't be as slippery. And like, they did everything to a T that mm-hmm. we had practiced for those two weeks before. And we won conference. Wow. That's I great. Was like, out of the blue, people were blown away. And it was just that visualization and the right. believing in them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's so cool. Um, yeah. It's, it's through the years I, I've had certain kids that really can embrace it and, and go yeah. with it. And then you've got the other ones that sort of just like, what's this hocus pocus you're, yeah. you're trying to tell me to do. And and they resist yeah. it so much. And I, and, and, you know, exposure to new ideas, to expand their horizons, the way they think. Um, I love those opportunities when it comes to coaching. And, uh, you know, I, I'd read about cross limb training and I, and so it, it, I knew when I threw, um, I did a lot of things with my left arm um, to practice. And, and I learned that I could feel the the components of the throw differently in my left than I could feel them in my right. And I actually taught myself how to improve on the right because I would see the problems in my left. And so wow. it just, it just worked out. And then I did some research on cross limb training and just read and, and, and found that, you know, generally it's, it's very effective, especially if you have someone who's injured. So I tried that with one of my, my throwers, who was one of, one of my kids who got to go to nationals and they were, they were in PT school and, and they were, you know, uh, pre-PT, I guess, or no, they just started PT school. Anyway, um, then it was hocus pocus. They just would not embrace, uh, you know, the idea. And, and I remember thinking, you know, about it. And then all I did to try to convince them, but then also it made me mad is I, I went ahead and put a bibliography together for them, our work site or whatever. And I yeah. say, look, here's 50 studies 
that say yeah. this is the way they do. And, and, and you know me, I'm not going to tell you something unless I know it's been looked at and researched. Yeah. I don't pull things out of, out of the thin air. Yeah, and I think yeah. they begrudgingly started doing it because I had to make them do it anyway. And they yeah. ended up still having a very good year. And their technique was so much better on, oh. on that other side. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that we have, have those shared experiences of, of doing the coaching. And now, what did you place in conference, if not when conference, when you ran at center in, in your events? Oh, gosh. Did you ever have that? I'm sure you, you just stay up all night thinking about these things, Vonda. Honestly, I don't remember. I do mm-hmm. remember the year that we, we, were, um, we were at Swanee, and they were an hour difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, timeline than us for um cross country and we were doing our strategy in the van and all of a sudden we heard the gun go off oh my god that was our race wow what'd you do we ran to the um we ran to the um starting line yeah and and then ran right and i think if I'm remembering right, I think I got fifth place in that race. Wow. Um, um, but you know, because there was so much adrenaline and absolutely wanting to catch everybody. Um, I, I honestly don't remember if I won conference. There was a girl I was battling who I don't. I don't. It's okay. (laughs) Just, just, just a complete throw, throw away question, so to speak. Um, I mean, I, I, I had some success and I didn't, you know, in other cases and, uh, I love going, you said you went to Emory. Is that where you said you went? For for like track? Yeah. You know, for, so where was this meet where you did this? Was it at Swanee or? University okay, so, of the South yeah. in Tennessee. Yeah, I, I, I usually really enjoyed going there, um, partially because I was obsessed with one of the girls that ran there, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I never, I never had the gumption to go talk to her, and uh, but I still just I'm like, oh, gonna go, I'm gonna see her again another year. This is great, <laughs> and 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 yeah. imagine I never really had a good. I think I was a little too distracted. Uh, yeah. for those yeah. meets, but, uh, um, exactly. anyway, anyway, uh, I, I, is there anything else that you would like to share about what you're doing right now? Any other projects or, and, and if not, that's okay. Yeah. We, we've, think, we've had a pretty good chat. We have, I think, I think really, I got to share a ton of stuff, Rob. You were super generous. Oh, good. Well, good, good. I'm glad. Um, where, if you want people to contact you, can they contact you? If after this podcast goes out to the thousands upon millions of people, exactly. uh, they're going to listen to it. Um, where, where can they contact you if they want to? Is that a possibility? Yeah, um, it would be my email, vonda.jump okay. at usu.edu. Okay. Now for the tough question. What is the origin of the name jump? Where does it come from? Um, is it, is it like farmer 
And, you know, farmer, typically the people who are named that are farmers um, or is jump something that you guys just had incredible verticals as a family or where, where do we think that came from? Ever thought about it? It like, it has a German background. Does it? I think, I think I read that. That 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 makes me even more curious. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, but I'm trying to think, um, I, I can't even think of a German word at this point, but you think it might be some, so it may be, it, it meant jump and then you just, they maybe anglicized it and uh, made it that possibly. Well, actually, huh? I just now looked it up. It says okay. the origin of this interesting and unique surname originally evolved from England and well, is I would a think. vocational name from jump a church near Plymouth in the division of Devon or mm-hmm. the small hamlet of Jump in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Makes, wow. makes complete sense. Makes Gosh. complete sense. You, there's a Jump family crest, coat of arms, and name Of is- course there is. Holy cow. <laughs> Look what you found out. Uh, potential, yeah. at least your crest. Yeah, you make me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at that more actually. Like we've looked at some of our family heritage, but I've never really thought about that name. I do mm-hmm. know that on my other side, my like, I don't know, great, 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 whatever grandfather was the first person killed in the American Revolution. What? Yeah. And what, and what is that name? Samuel Crowley. A Crowley, really? C-R-O-W-L-E-Y, like my... The the family name is now Crowley. They took out the W. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, Samuel Crowley was, you know, the revolution what, hadn't been declared yet, but he is the first person who died in the, who, you know, they say has died in the American Revolution. Yeah. Was, was this in Virginia territory? That's okay. Again, we're not using any of this, even though we're still recording. Let's do this. I'm going to stop recording. Um, I'm going to say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to stop. We'll we'll keep talking. Um, Because then there's there's Crispus Attucks, who is always famously known for the the Boston massacre, Uh um, who is being one of the first people to die. And... So, but I, but I, I'm trying to think of it's like Fort Sumter. I'm not, I'm trying to remember. It, it actually is Point Pleasant in Mason County, West Virginia. Okay. There South you go. South. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So you got some West Virginia blood in you too? That's my, my dad's from West Virginia. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> I, I like like I've just viewed that a couple of times mm-hmm. and then I don't know, I was talking about it to somebody. Oh, somebody asked me my heritage, like my family name. And, and I just said that. And mm. um, he looked it up like, and found it online. I was like, Oh yeah, you're right. Dr. Vonda jump Norman. 
thank you so much for I'm, I can't keep a straight face <laughs> talking like that after we've already spoken uh, I'll use that thank you so much for doing this talk with me I, I told you I almost feel like I need these kind of talks um, so I can satisfy this curiosity that I have um, it, it, and again it's something that just makes sense it's, it's the title of the podcast that tracks and I wish you all the the continued success that you've already had <clears throat> excuse me and you know hopefully uh, we could get together and do something like this again get some new research findings or whatever it is and or we could just go talk about the whole time and I'll tell you about the Icelandic Olympic javelin thrower I'm going to enter in three days oh super <laughs> interesting too when you think so. we're doing that I was like that is going to be really cool <laughs> Rob, it's been super nice to be here, and I really appreciate you being interested in anything that I'm doing. Absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. 